Welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today through the glitchy magic of online video chat are Dr. Elena Papianis. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, folks. Now, I should point out at this point, because I always introduce you as doctors, because you are doctors. However, because we're talking about medicine today, I should point out that neither of you is a medical doctor. We're not that kind of doctor. We're not real doctors, as I've been told in my <laughs> the past. Like if you're on an airplane and somebody yells out, oh, no, is there a doctor on this plane? Technically, you could both say, yes, we are doctors, but you, you wouldn't in that sense. I would never. I would never. No. But I toyed with the idea of becoming a quote unquote real doctor. Until one day, I actually thought about what that entails, like not the showing up at a cocktail party and telling people what you do, but the actual day to day job of a doctor. And it revolted me so much that I, uh, I, I never decided, I never went anywhere close to that field. A lot of fluids, a lot of mess. Yeah, well, we do specialize in a kind of mess, in a kind of fluid mess, because we specialize in information. And so that's why we're talking about this today, because while we are going to go into a little bit about the nature of vaccines and the nature of biology, what we're mostly talking about today is the way that we talk about vaccines, is the information that's out there in vaccines, and we'll be investigating some of the theories and claims that are made. Uh, because we're gonna dive right into the, the massive amount of information that we're surrounded by to try to see which information is reasonable and accurate and which is incorrect, or even maybe deliberately lying to us. Are you excited? Let's, let's do it. I mean, I'm depressed already from just doing the research, but this is something we need to do. So we, we need to do it. We need to okay. work ahead. Yeah. Right. So, I'm, I'm super excited. <laughs> um, and I mean, what's more exciting than living in January of 2021, which is what we're doing now. I should say right off that while we receive no advertising money or funding from any corporations or organizations, I feel like we do spend a lot of time burning as many bridges as we can with those groups. Uh, I was thinking, I was looking over our, uh, our, our past episodes, what are some of the companies and agencies that would never ever advertise with us because of things that we've said? Well, BW. I've, I've mentioned their uh, emissions mm -hmm. scandal so many times because we have actually never talked about corporate conspiracies on our podcast. So I'm pretty sure VW would never. Absolutely. Uh, Volkswagen's off. I remember something about Coca-Cola. Um, obviously, any government agencies, CIA, oh, yeah. FBI, RCMP, the KGB, none of these groups are going to want to advertise with us. No. And it's likely that today we're going to also burn through Big Pharma as a potential source of revenue for us. Because what I wanted to start with in this conversation about vaccines, there are legitimate reasons for people to be nervous about the claims that come from massive pharmaceutical corporations. So I want to start, if I can, if you guys would indulge me, I want to get a little personal and biographical if I may. I was born in Canada sometime in the mid 70s. It's not exactly clear when uh, it's classified. But if I had been born at the beginning of the 1960s, there's a chance that my mother could have been offered a new wonder drug that would have helped her with her morning sickness. And that drug was called thalidomide. And it was discovered that in addition to helping people with morning sickness, it also led to some serious effects on the fetus, including abnormalities in limb development. Later on in life, I broke an ankle playing pickup basketball in the early 2000s and I was prescribed the new wonder drug Vioxx made by Merck, who will now not advertise with us, 
because Vioxx, this drug I was given for my ankle pain, would later be pulled off the market when it turned out that the drug contributed to an increased risk of heart attack and stroke. And a few years ago, I went to the funeral of a 19-year-old. Uh, he was the victim of the opioid epidemic that has been like completely terribly destructive for decades now. And what made it even sadder is many of the mourners who showed up to that funeral were high at the funeral on the very same drug that had killed their friend. And many drug companies share blame in that disaster by minimizing the dangers of addiction and by encouraging doctors to prescribe painkillers to their patients. Like there's a lot of lawsuits that are out right now against drug companies for behavior like this, Purdue, Merck, uh, Pfizer. And so those are just a few of the reasons why we're starting off sympathetic to anybody who is suspicious of drug companies. And there's other reasons too involving the amount of, of money that these corporations have and the ability that they have to use that money to, to get political power. When I was at York University doing my PhD there, uh, also here in Toronto, I was working on the side with a woman who was both a historian and an anthropologist. And her area of research was absolutely fascinating. She looked at the phenomenon of ghost writing in medical journals. Now, I didn't even know this existed. But what happens quite frequently is that a well-known doctor is given money to sign off on an article that was written by a drug company. And it, the drug company uses all their own data, um, writes the article extremely favorably. Now, they tend not to be bald-faced lies, but they tend to be the most sympathetic and generous interpretation of the data you could possibly get. Now, the medical journals are supposed to be independent bodies. They're supposed to be peer-reviewed so that um, it's precisely not a trade magazine from a pharmaceutical company, but actually independent data that doctors can use. But this is being undermined right at the core with a huge amount of money by pharmaceutical companies. It's not to say all the articles are ghostwritten, but this is a really big problem. And it speaks again, Nathan, to how you start that you know, this is not a blameless industry that just cures people and then there's the rest of us who don't believe it. There's a lot of uh, nefarious stuff that goes on. And I really, I was really surprised about this phenomenon of ghostwriting. Yeah. Like those are just a few of the reasons why we're, we're sympathetic to this idea that, you know, drug companies are maybe, maybe deserve some of our suspicion. In fact, they might deserve a lot of our suspicion. The overall question we're investigating today, of course, because again, it's January of 2021, are vaccines safe? So the first thing we should probably do is talk about how vaccines work. Uh, so again, not a medical expert, but I'm gonna sort of give a, a layperson's account of, of the human body for a second. So first of all, our bodies, when they're functioning properly, have immune systems. Some of the stuff we encounter as we move through the world is healthy to us, some is harmful, and some is neither. In order for us to survive, we need to have a system that accepts the healthy stuff, identifies and removes the harmful stuff, and ignores the rest. Millions of years of mammal evolution have provided us with a pretty good system. It isn't perfect, which is why we still catch colds where our immune system doesn't recognize a cold virus soon enough, and why we have allergies when our immune system mistakes something harmless like pollen for something harmful and then overreacts. Uh, an important part of our immune system is our white blood cells. They're produced in our bone marrow and patrol our bodies looking for harmful pathogens. One way they detect pathogens is by sensing antigens. 
That's any substance that causes your body to start reacting to fight it off. These antigens are often found on the outside of a pathogen. After our white blood cells find antigens in our bodies, our bodies start reacting to fight off that threat. Now, there's two main kinds of white blood cells, phagocytes and lymphocytes. Phagocytes react to a threat by they're, they're cruising around the bloodstream looking for and destroying any pathogen they come across, basically by eating them, which is cool. The information about that pathogen is then transmitted by the phagocytes to the lymphocytes. A kind of lymphocyte with the improbably cool name of killer T-cell, then those cruise around the body looking for our own cells that may have been infected with that pathogen so that our own cells can't be used against us to pump out more pathogens into our system. Meanwhile, helper T and B cells use the information gathered by the phagocytes to start pumping out antibodies into our system. Antibodies are specifically constructed to attack one kind of antigen. If you imagine antigens are like little locks, antibodies are like little keys designed perfectly to fit those antigens and open them up for destruction. Once this process is finished and the pathogen has been eliminated from your body, your memory B cells hold on to the information for that pathogen so that the next time you encounter it, your immune system already has the ability to create the antibodies to help destroy it. It's like your adaptive immune system is always building up a library of all of the pathogens it has experienced over your life. Uh, this is why uh, if you and someone you live with gets the same cold, you don't just keep passing it back and forth until one of you gets tired of it and moves out. So basically the purpose of a vaccine is to mimic a pathogen infection without actually introducing the pathogen. That way your body has the immune reaction and stores up the information on how to fight that pathogen without the risk of the pathogen running wild in your body and causing you to become sick. So does that make sense? It does. The body's an incredible thing. Yeah, it's an incredible thing, but it's also kind of like an incredible Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> like it's, its systems are sort of elaborate and kind of messy and confusing and, and are probably needlessly complex in some ways. Well, and it doesn't always function, right? Like in the way of allergies, you know, attacking your own body. We don't always get it right. If Nathan's description was too complicated, there's a fantastic kids film I just watched with my children called Osmosis Jones, which goes into a lot of the workings of T cells and stuff like that. But the way I like to think about it is that one of these vaccines is like a wanted poster for the police. It is a mock-up of the criminal that they can then use to go find it. And so, you know, without that, it's hard to actually identify in the crowd who the criminals are. So Nathan provided a very true and technical explanation. Uh, and the if, kind if of explanation it, that I right. always try to provide. That's right. Uh, Sorry, I was going to say, Nathan, I'm actually surprised you didn't use some like airplane analogy or something since... That's kind of your style. Do you know what's tricky is that I use the virus analogy so often that when it comes time to talk about the virus itself, I've <laughs> got nowhere to go. Right. <laughs> you need an airplane analogy. Anyway, help, uh, it's a wanted poster for the cops if, if, if that's more helpful. Yeah, and so there's a few ways of getting that wanted poster into our body. One is called the live attenuated vaccine. And what it does is it takes a weakened version of the virus so that your immune system can beat it up without becoming fully infected. This form of vaccine is effective but can be dangerous to people with compromised immune systems. Because if your immune system isn't operating properly, even a weakened virus may be able to get a foothold in you. 
So there's another kind of vaccine called a subunit or recombinant vaccine. They use just bits of deactivated viral particles. That way our, our, our helper T and B cells can still gather information and produce antibodies to fight that specific virus, but you don't have to introduce viable and active viral material into the body. In order to get the immune system's attention, subunit vaccines require something called an adjuvant, which is like a little irritant that gets the deactivated virus particles noticed by your immune system. This form of vaccine is safer for people with compromised immune systems because you aren't introducing entire viruses, just little chunks of them. But it isn't as effective at producing an immune response as a live attenuated vaccine. Now, the process of creating live attenuated or recombinant vaccines is a very long one because you have to take care not to, like you have to make sure that the virus material isn't strong enough to take over a body. The adjuvant doesn't have harmful side effects or long-term effects. And vast amounts of the virus have to be produced in order to get enough material for mass vaccination programs. So for these reasons, as of January 2021, there doesn't exist a COVID-19 vaccine that uses either of these methods. But there are other newer methods to vaccinate. We could have an mRNA vaccine or a DNA vaccine. Now, creating an mRNA vaccine is a more rapid process, but it's a much newer technology. And it's one that might actually sound a little bit scarier at first, even though these, these genetic vaccines are in some ways simpler than the previous vaccines. They have fewer ingredients, for example. But when you hear about the process, it, it seems a little bit science fiction-y. It, it works like this, the mRNA vaccine. The coronavirus, for example, looks appropriately enough like a little star. It's covered in spikes that it uses to attach itself to our healthy cells. An mRNA vaccine takes the part of the virus's genetic instructions that the virus uses to build those spikes out of protein. And then you surround just that little bit of instructions with a lipid bilayer, basically like a little fat envelope to serve as a little container for it. And then that gets injected, just that part of the virus's genetic material, that is instructions on how to make the spikes, gets injected uh, into our body as messenger RNA then when our cells get that messenger RNA, we start manufacturing those little spikes on our own. RNA, it's, it's like a message. If DNA is the blueprints for life, RNA is a little message, a little temporary message that activates certain things or deactivates certain things. So our cells will get this little fatty collection of RNA information that basically just tells our cells, hey, start pumping out these spikes. And so then our immune system detects those spikes that we have made and learns how to attack the spiky intruders, even though our own bodies were the ones that made them. Then if we get exposed to COVID-19, our bodies have the instructions on how to fight back against those little spikes and our white blood cells go to work attacking the COVID-19 virus. The mRNA vaccine, after it transmits its instructions, is then broken down by your immune system so it doesn't stick around in your body. And it's important to note that unlike DNA, messenger RNA does not replicate itself. DNA is the blueprint, RNA is instructions. DNA can make RNA, but RNA can't make DNA. mRNA vaccines can be produced quickly and don't run the risk of generating unwanted symptoms in the person being vaccinated. But in order to keep those, that, those weird little fatty envelopes filled with RNA together, Basically, you have to store the vaccines at extremely cold temperatures. And so that, that's sort of a problem in rollout because not everybody has access, especially in, for example, northern communities, maybe you don't have access to that kind of fridge. So there's a fourth kind of vaccine, a DNA vaccine. 
which is even scarier when I describe it. It operates similarly to the RNA style, except DNA is used. And instead of surrounding the DNA with a little fat envelope, uh, the DNA instructions are placed in a chimpanzee virus called the adenovirus. And I totally appreciate this sounds like the beginning of a horror movie. A chimp cold virus is used because this virus has not circulated in the human population, so our bodies won't recognize it and destroy it as soon as it's injected. So then that chimp virus with reprogrammed DNA transfers the COVID-19 DNA into our cells, but it's a genetically engineered form of the COVID DNA with the instructions on how to replicate removed and replaced with instructions to simply, again, make those little spikes, similar to the RNA vaccine. Well, this one sounds a little bit more elaborate and much more frightening than the RNA style. Because the genetic information is stored in a virus covering rather than a little fat envelope, it's way more robust and doesn't require the deep freeze storage of an RNA vaccine. Is that an option for people right now? Is the DNA one actually out there? The DNA one is the AstraZeneca vaccine, okay. which is being used basically only in England right now. Okay. Now we're in Canada, or if you're listening to this in the United States, you're not going to probably have access to the DNA vaccine because the vaccines that we're using in North America are both RNA vaccines. Like, you have to admit, that sounds pretty weird. That sounds pretty scary. I mean, especially, well, yeah, I mean, it's so easy to misunderstand. Like, you explained it really well, because you do see a lot of information circulating where people are scared just because of this notion of mRNA and not really understanding what it means and being scared that it actually does change your DNA. Like, I've seen that claim out there in the Twitterverse or wherever. So... It's, yeah, it's a very real fear that people have They don't, because they don't understand it. If, if I told you, hey, I'm going to take a monkey virus with some genetically manipulated DNA and inject it into your body, like you're probably going to have an emotional reaction to that. I yeah, would have I an emotional reaction. Yeah, I don't love that idea. <laughs> I don't. But I did find that the more I learned about it, the more, again, the, the more it sort of made sense to me. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm still, because I'm always honest with you guys, I'm st I was still kind of relieved when I realized that we, like you, we won't probably get the DNA vaccine. We'll probably get the RNA vaccine. And I felt relieved despite the fact that even though I just did this whole explanation of how these vaccines work and how the immune system works, my level of knowledge in this area is tiny and mostly based on watching Fantastic Voyage from the 1960s starring Raquel Welch. I, I think one of the things we may come we may come to speak on this a bit later on, but I think it's worth disaggregating what people are worried about. And I think one of the issues, especially with vaccines, is there's this coercive dimension to it. If vaccines are going to work, I can certainly take a vaccine, and there'll be a certain effectiveness that's associated with it. And it depends on the vaccine, it depends on the virus it's for. Then it becomes an essentially private decision whether, say, I want to get a flu vaccine. However, in order for vaccines to have a social impact, like it, when we're facing something like a pandemic, and it's not just about whether you personally get sick, but about whether the virus, the disease, is able to spread through communities, you need social buy-in. You need what we will surely come to talk about is known within the community as herd immunity. Enough people in the community to act as a stop, not a transmission point for the disease. 
Now, the issue then is that we require, in order for vaccines to work at a social level, we require people to get on, like, to do it. And I think this is where some of the antagonism comes from, is, well, me personally, I actually don't find Nathan's description particularly upsetting. I mean, frankly, I don't really see, and this is just a very personal thing, that's, I guess that's my point, don't really see the difference between eating something and injecting it. Probably there is, and surely a doctor is somewhere, a real doctor is rolling their eyes. But, you know, for me, I'm putting something in my body, and there's a lot of stuff there. Who knows what the hell it is? Usually it's fine. I, that's just the way I am. But I get that that's not how everybody is. And I think one of the resistance, one of the, one of the moments of resistance emerges because of the need to essentially coerce people who don't want to do it. And, and I think I want to maybe disaggregate this as we move forward. I think there are uh, at least two or three different reasons why people are worried about the vaccine. One is they're actually worried about some kind of actual risk to themselves or their community. And Nathan, starting with the, the not so great track record of pharmaceuticals in the past, there's maybe something to worry about. You know, I mean, uh, thalidomide was one case, but there's many others where we didn't get all the information and they maybe didn't even have it. And a lot of people paid the price. So there's the fear factor, but there's also the question of autonomy and uh, the question of coercion. I guess that's related to autonomy. You know, do I get to choose to do this? Is this a voluntary thing or is this something you're forcing me? So I think I would hold out, at least in principle, that there are people who are like, yeah, you know, whatever, maybe it works, but I don't want to do it and you can't make me. And, and, and just, again, not to totally derail our starting point with the scientific discussion of vaccines, but I think there's even a subsection of this with, say, genuine religious convictions, where some vaccines use uh, fetal embryo uh, parts of it, uh, some use uh, uh, bovine cells, some use uh, pig cells. So if you are a devout Muslim, if you're, uh, you know, somebody, uh, uh, you know, a Christian who takes abortion and that kind of stuff very seriously, you might actually also think that the vaccine is technically workable, but it's not the kind of thing anybody can force you to put inside your body. I just wanted to clarify that. Uh, that's true, but it, it's important to notice that that tissue was gathered like 60 years ago. There isn't currently fetal tissue being harvested for the purpose of these vaccines. What they're doing is they're using genetic lines that were drawn from fetal tissue that was, that was taken back in the 1960s. Now, a person might still have some kind of moral objection to that, but they should know at the very least that this isn't something that is happening right now. And there's also like genuine risks of vaccines that I, I think that people should understand. If you're being asked, to put something in your body, then you should know what some of the risks are. Uh, the most common side effects of receiving a vaccine, they're the sort of typical reactions you feel when your immune system kicks in, uh, or the way that Lee feels basically every day. Runny nose, soreness, fatigue, low-grade fevers, that kind of thing. Uh, loss of appetite. Now, these are all short-term, and they all fade in a day or two. But there's a very small but still serious possibility of having an allergic reaction to a vaccine. And in these cases, you can get high fevers. You can even get seizures. Such extreme effects are very rare historically because we have a lot of data about people getting vaccinated. 
no more than one in a hundred thousand vaccinated people can sometimes have this kind of reaction. And even those reactions can, of course, be treated immediately through epinephrine to reduce the immune response. Uh, vaccines that use eggs in their manufacturing process can also cause severe reactions in people with egg allergies, although that isn't the case, of course, with these COVID vaccines. The measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine has about a 1 in 3,000 chance of causing a high but temporary fever in the kid being immunized. And I think it's important for the medical community to be honest and transparent about these side effects in order to maintain the trust of the community they serve. If a person hears that, well, vaccines are 100% safe, and then they hear from a friend or a colleague that they know of a situation where a kid got a fever after being vaccinated, like that trust gets eroded and people will start to wonder, well, if they lied about that, what are some of the other things they've lied about? I think that's an excellent point, Nathan. I was just, as you were talking, I went to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control's website, and I actually got here following an anti-vaccine post link. Um, so this link was inside an anti-vaxxers thread suggesting that you got to check out, you know, the what even the CDC is admitting that these are the dangers of the, of the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Let me just quickly read it. Um, Nathan mentioned uh, soreness and fever, but there are even more serious reactions. They're very rare, but I'm reading right off the CDC websites. They can include seizures, pneumonia, swelling of the brain. They can cause serious immune problems. So Nathan is totally right. We, um, the medical community has on the whole downplayed it because they're working off of statistical data. And the statistical data says this stuff is overwhelmingly safe, but these do happen, these things happen to people. Now, just as um, a gauge on how dangerous this stuff is, it's worth actually, and I did this just before we went to record, I, I typed in what are the side effects of Tylenol? And it's quite shocking. So common side effects include nausea, stomach pain, itching, a rash, headache, uh, dark urine, clay-colored stool, or jaundice. And those are not the serious side effects. Very serious side effects include um, swelling of the tongue, the face, the throat, trouble breathing, severe dizziness. Now, this is just part of modern medicine. There is nothing as far as I know, that is 100% guaranteed to be completely safe for everybody under all circumstances. Well, imagine and if you, when you were up, uh, what are the side effects of peanuts? What are the side effects of lobster? Strawberries. There's going to be somebody who has a deadly reaction to strawberries, and they're maybe not going to know it until they have their first strawberry at the age of four or 10 or whatever. Yeah. So this kind of, and it is very tragic, you know, and if you have a mother posting this horrible image of a child suffering. I mean, I, I, nobody can handle that. So it's, it's emotionally extremely powerful, but it is statistically completely expected. However, the communication around that has been really bad. And I'll give you one example that I actually discovered in doing our research. It actually was so bad. I was, it was an ethical question for me to whether to even raise it or not. It turns out that there is an oral version of the polio vaccine, which is used exclusively overseas. It's not used in uh, the United States, in Canada, or in Western Europe. And the reason for that is because um, it's a cheaper version. 
So it's used primarily by aid groups in the third world countries. And it's an oral vaccine for the polio virus. As Nathan said, um, this is an example of a live vaccine. Uh, so there's a very small amount of the actual polio virus inside the vaccine. And it turns out that one in one million children who get the vaccine actually are infected with polio. This is something that has been systematically denied. And, and, and nobody has benefited from the pharmaceutical companies, from the WHO, from outfits like that, saying there's nothing to see here. This is, you know, vaccines are overwhelmingly safe. So while I agree with all of that, and I personally get myself vaccinated and my kids and everything else, I think just to Nathan's point about like just being very um, upfront with the risks is really important. So Lee, is this, um, are, th- are these still being used? The oral ones abroad? Is that what you're saying? As, f- as far as I know. So I discovered it in a talk uh, by somebody who's not an immunologist. I looked it up and there was um, the last report I saw on it was from NPR in November of 2019. Okay. So because, as of November of 2019, um, this was still happening. Okay, because um, I found a case where it was back in 1955 in the U.S., and there were a bunch of 200,000 children who got that, Oreo, that oral polio vaccine, and many of them got sick, or I think it caused 40,000 cases of polio. It left 200 children with varying degrees of paralysis, and 10 of them died but it happened because the virus was, or sorry, the virus was not made inactive within the um, vaccination. So we'll get to this later about how there's some concerns over things like formaldehyde and mercury being used in vaccines, but they're used for good reason because in this case, it was the formaldehyde that was needed to basically kill the live part of the virus, uh, which they didn't do correctly. So that was an issue with manufacturing that ended up causing all of this, um, this harm to children in the States in 1955. The, the risks are real, but, and this is something that we were talking about before we started podcasting, about how we're not great at understanding the nature of risk, because there's, there's sort of an issue with the way that we perceive evidence. Statistical analysis, which scientists love, is a pretty robust form of proof, but it doesn't resonate with us emotionally at all. And our beliefs are intrinsically linked to our emotions. Like, if you hear that the chance of an adverse side effect is one in 10,000, like that won't impact your decision-making nearly as much as if you hear a story about that one person in the 10,000 who was the unlucky one. It's the, it's the same reason people play the lottery. Reading the stats about how your chances are one in a million to win is not as powerful as motiv- a motivation as reading about the person who does win. But, but think about this. Would you play the lottery if, in order to hear about the one person who won, you had to first hear the individual stories of each of the million people who didn't win? In the same way, if we heard the individual stories of the 10,000 people who had no side effects be, before hearing the one story of the person who did, we'd have, a more, we'd have a much better intuitive understanding of how the stats actually play out. Without a story to warm them up, stats are just cold numbers. I mean, that's a great point. Even the, the size of some of the numbers, um, whether it's you getting numbers about the chances of having an adverse reaction or you getting numbers about the chances of like the mortality rate, if you do catch a certain um, disease or virus, it is hard to understand. 
right? That's not like a natural thing for us to kind of put those numbers into perspective in our lives or to understand them. But like you said, one emotional story, one, you know, very uh, traumatic looking picture, and that sticks with you. That you can understand on like, you know, that primal emotional level. And, and we understand this, like, for example, I don't know why I'm picking on Lee today. Lee, I hope he doesn't mind I'm saying something personal about him. Lee understands these statistics. It depends what you say. <laughs> yeah. Lee understands these statistics about the safety of airplane travel. But Lee, what do you think of, how do you feel about flying in an airplane? No, it's, it's, I'm just, I'm, I'm sweating with fear just at the very mention of it. And it's true. There's so often when I rationally understand <laughs> that this is a, either both a safe or extremely dangerous activity, but it's really my emotional content that guides my behavior. Um, you know, I feel very confident about driving and yet really that is one of the most dangerous activities we engage in on a day, that and having a bath, you know, I mean, it's just the, it's, it's quite shocking. I wanted to though touch on a really important point I think Elena was making about, it, it is hard to understand numbers. It's hard to understand how they really relate to me. And I think there's something worth adding to that, which is called the omission bias which is the sense that if I do something, I'm more culpable of the results than if I don't do something. So the idea is if I get vaccinated and something happens to me as a result of that, then I am to blame in a way that I am not to blame if I don't get vaccinated and I get sick. Because really what we need to be comparing is not what are the dangers of vaccination uh, in terms of just you get the vaccine or you don't get the vaccine, it's really what's the danger of getting vaccinated and potentially getting hurt by the vaccine versus not getting vaccinated and potentially getting hurt by the disease. So in that case, it's really just a what's a more likely scenario. And there, I think sometimes the numbers are quite helpful. This one, this option is one in a million, something bad's going to happen to you, whereas that one is one in 10,000. If you knew nothing else, except that there were two bags of marbles, if you draw the black one out of the rest of the white ones, you're in big trouble. You don't know what kind. Which bag do you choose? The one with a million white marbles and one black one, or the one with 10,000 white marbles and one black one, right? I mean, it's just everybody would make the same choice, but it only makes sense when we are comparing it with the risk of not doing it. And we have this cognitive bias, which means that if I'm doing something, I am generating the risk. But if I'm not doing anything, well, you know, it's nature or God or whatever. But of course, choosing not to do something is choosing. The classic example that we often hear philosophy professors talk about is the trolley car experiment. Would you, if there was a runaway trolley car and it's either going to go down the track, it's going and hit five people, or you could pull a lever, go down a different track and it would hit one person. Obviously, it's better, it's not better, it's less bad to have one person killed than five. But when you talk to people, they say, I'm reluctant to pull that lever because then I feel responsible for killing one person. But really, by not pulling the lever, when you could, you are responsible for killing the five people through inaction because inaction is still a choice. The other aspect I would add to that from a moral philosophy perspective is that not only is it a question of, okay, well, I could take the vaccine with a small chance of me having an adverse reaction to it, or I could risk getting the disease, but there's also the risk of you spreading the disease. Like it isn't 
only the idea that, okay, I need to protect myself with the vaccine, but I think even we have a, like a far greater moral obligation that we don't become infected and then give someone else that virus. The idea that, oh, I don't want somebody injecting something in me that, that, that's foreign, that's sure. But if you give somebody a disease through a virus, then you have injected something in them that's foreign. I think um, what you're saying, Nathan, also brings us kind of back to that tension that Lee was pointing out between our individual kind of rights over our bodies versus our social obligation towards one another. Because as you said, it is not just a matter of, you know, what are the chances of me getting it? But it's us putting others at risk who maybe are immunocompromised and can't get a vaccine, um, you know, babies or adults with, with autoimmune disorders. And so there's so many people that it's almost like a privilege to be able to get some vaccines in a way when you think about it. So yeah, it points to that tension between, you know, our own individual right versus how much we're obligated to one another. And I wanted to bring something else up um, about omission bias. So I was looking some of, some stuff up too about omission bias and I came across something that was interesting. They were looking at it in terms of vaccinations. And what some of these studies found was that it was more about regret and people making regret avoiding choices. So if they felt that they would feel um, less regret by vaccinating, that might be their choice. Or if they felt like they might feel less regret by not vaccinating, not vaccinating, that might be their choice. But I don't know, I don't, it's not definitive, but it was an interesting kind of switch on that because regret really is like a feeling, right? That's like an emotion. So it's, it points to how really emotionally driven this decision-making is. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, I think there's a very intelligent conversation that needs to be a very like honest and intelligent conversation that we, that we need to have about the nature of risk, about how viruses work, about how uh, immunization works, about all of this. Unfortunately, because information is also a contagious virus, instead of having just this intelligent and useful conversation, there's just a ton of false information circulating in the virtual ecosystem. For example, imagine this situation. There's a social media site with an algorithm that promotes posts when they receive a lot of attention in the form of views and interaction in the form of responses. This is how most social media sites work. One person posts a reasonable argument about vaccine risks that is composed of a nuanced, well-supported conclusion. Another person posts a wild accusation about vaccines based on nothing. The wild accusation is going to receive more attention and responses from people who support it because it confirms their bias in an exciting and satisfying way. People who disagree with the accusation will also interact with it because they're going to get into arguments and flame wars with the other commenters. And so all this time, that unsupported rant is going to rise up in popularity. It's going to be featured more prominently on the site, more eyes will see it, which will generate more attention, which will cause it to rise further, which will generate more attention, and so on. Whereas that reasonable, well-supported post will sink out of the public view as a victim of natural virtual selection. And this all helps us to understand why, according to a 2018 study by three MIT scholars, fake news posts on Twitter were 70% more likely to be retweeted than true stories. And it took true stories six times as long to reach 1,500 people as a false story. Because truth has a disadvantage in the virtual ecosystem. A false story can be tailored to appeal to people's confirmation biases. A false story can be made deliberately short, new, and shocking, which are all qualities that work well in the digital environment. 
A true story has the liability of requiring context, being complex, and not being totally satisfactory to any one particular ideology or worldview. And conspiracy theories in particular can do extremely well, as they can be specifically engineered for that moment, or they can mutate and evolve in a way that appeals to prejudices and biases, or capitalizing on the fears that are circulating in the society at any given time. So we shouldn't be surprised to find some real absurd claims circulating. Uh, Elena, I remember a couple days ago, you sent me a meme that was going around in January 2021 that was a screenshot of a circuit diagram labeled COVID-19 5G chip diagram. Now, the claim made by that meme was that this was the schematic for the tiny microchip that would be placed in the vaccine in order to something, something, whatever. Uh, of course, the diagram... When, you, when we look at it, it includes an input gain stage and a foot switch because it wasn't a microchip diagram. It was a wiring diagram for a guitar pedal, a boss metal zone. Uh, another 2020 Which meme. I have to interrupt here. Sorry, Nathan. I oh, have okay. to interrupt just to let our audience know that Nathan knows this because in his spare time, he builds guitars, guitar pedals, and guitar amps. So when you saw this schematic, you're like, I've used this before. Yeah, wait a second. Capacitors, resistors, those are all way too big to put in a microchip. Uh, another 2020 meme that I came across recently showed a photograph of a morgue full of bodies with the caption, the 1918 Spanish flu did not kill 50 million people. Vaccines that the government forced them to take did it, and they are repeating the same pattern now. And of course, this is completely false. There was no 1918 Spanish flu vaccination. We didn't even know the flu was caused by a virus until 1933. Uh, there was another very popular video by osteopath Carrie Maddage, and it made the rounds on Facebook in 2020, in which she argued that the COVID-19 vaccine would contain nanobots that would force humans to transcend to a transhuman state and merge with artificial intelligence. Now, she also spoke on the same subject at the MAGA Freedom Rally in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, arguing that the vaccine will alter human DNA and control people's minds. Afterwards, she tweeted that the riot that caused the deaths of at least six people was, quote, amazing, peaceful, and uplifting, end quote. Now, I looked into her and some of her previous posts. She also fell in 2020 for a 2018 internet hoax that there was a restaurant in Los Angeles that was serving human flesh because she didn't bother doing a reverse image search on the iStock photo models that were supposed to be the staff for this non-existent restaurant on this hoax website. Now, the reason I bring that up is that I think it demonstrates that Medage's research and critical analysis skills maybe aren't quite up to par, and probably we shouldn't be listening to her as an expert on vaccines or on fine dining. But of course, it's never enough to discredit the messenger and ignore the message. So as far as her specific claims go, there are several issues with them as well. One is the idea that there is a vaccine for COVID-19. As we've talked about, there are several from different countries and companies. In addition, her claim that the RNA vaccine could alter a person's DNA goes against the accepted science regarding the nature of RNA. And there has been no evidence that as of 2021, nanobot technology has gotten to the point where it could be used to cause an involuntary human AI hybrid network. <laughs> I guess the main conclusion here is that, yes, there are some risks in vaccination, as we have discussed, but there are also significant risks in allowing contagious diseases to move through the population. There are some genuine ethical questions to be discussed here, but for myself, the risk of me accidentally infecting someone else with a potentially lethal virus far outweighs the possible but unlikely risk posed to me by being vaccinated. This is the equation that I run through every year when I decide to get my flu shot. 
and the equation that I ran through when I decided I would get the COVID-19 vaccine when my number comes up. But there is far more to say about this topic, and so we're going to make this episode a two-parter. And when we come back, Lee is going to look at the history of vaccine fears and panics, which goes back far longer than you would think and has some common elements always running through it. And Elena will look at our current situation and some of the modern fears and misconceptions that are circulating along with the coronavirus in this year of 2021. <laughs> 